Now it's time to explore the latest development in Samsung Technology. With Samsung Technology editor, we are actually woman, Ray Johnston. <laughs> Hi Bertrand, how are you? I'm very, very good. Now time to explore some exciting stories in uh, science and technology this week, starting with uh, testing new metal optical surfaces in space. Uh, what's this? Yes, so this is a new first-of-its-kind engineering study. It's been commissioned by the European Space Agency and it's using Aussie scientists because we're really good at this kind of thing. And it's hoping to prove how reliable meta-optical elements are for space use. Now, meta-optics, this is a new field of physics. And it's trying to replace the traditional optics. So think mirrors and lenses that are used in space with metasurfaces. Metasurfaces are thinner than a piece of cling wrap. And they will greatly reduce the size and weight and also the power needs of future space technology. So basically what all of this means is that this engineering study, it will work out if these new meta-optical components, if they can withstand the pressures of space launch and also that really long exposure to the space environment that they'll end up having. And look, technology like this is really important because we've got more and more demand for data about Earth, but from the perspective of space, it's called Earth observation data. But the space industry, it still has a lot of challenges, including size and weight constraints when sending satellites or people up into orbit. So these meta-optics will mean equipment that is smaller and also works better. And the researchers hope that this project is the start of you know, really deepening advanced industry and research collaboration between Europe and Australia as well. So lots of opportunities there with some exciting new space age technology. Wow, wow, wow. That's uh, amazing. And now we come uh, back to us from the space with... Uh Survival of the fittest for critically endangered parrot. Uh, so the fittest, only the, the fittest survive in uh, this species. Is it uh, the case or the later well, discoveries? This is about the orange-bellied parrot. And this is a critically endangered parrot. And its first attempt at migration, it's often full of risk. But a new study from the researchers at the university the Australian National University, rather, that's got some clues about which of the birds are most likely to survive. So this study, it looked at the juvenile survival rates of both wild and also captive-bred orange-bellied parrots. And surprisingly, both groups were equally likely to survive their first migration. But birds that were heavier as nestlings, they were much more likely to survive. So I think in this instance, it's more the uh, survival of the fattest, which is good news for me and all the cheesecake I eat in the afternoon. But regardless of whether they came from the wild or captive population, it is that weight that makes a difference. And this study, they've been looking at these chicks for years and drawing data from them all about their growth. And they found a bit of variation in chick body condition in the wild population. And that's not surprising because 
They've got things like, you know, variable food availability and predators and wild weather. But those nestlings born in the wild were almost always in better body condition than the captive parrots. So this has identified a clear new research goal aimed at improving the quality of those captive reared parrots and making sure that they are as healthy as possible when they're young. And the orange-bellied parrot breeding program, it's, it's a really big one. There's several hundred birds in captivity and working out which birds get released into the wild and when, it can be really tricky because there's a lot of factors involved when choosing who gets released into the wild. But this study showing nestling body condition is a handy tool to work out which ones have the best odds of surviving after release. And it can also help identify birds that are struggling and need a bit of a hand. But the researchers are saying that just because some birds might be at the lower end of the bell curve when it comes to physical condition, that doesn't mean they're not valuable to the overall population. All of these birds are important. But these results do show the importance of thinking strategically when it comes to our breeding programs and using all of the available evidence in the hopes of improving survival outcomes for critically endangered species, like the adorable little orange-bellied parrot. Yeah, little beautiful creatures there. And now we go to another one. Uh, the Bogong Watch begins. It's said that uh, Invertebrates Australia is set to launch the National Bogong Moth Observatory. I think this will be very good for school kids to go and uh, discover this as well. Absolutely. This is good for all of us. So this is a partnership between Invertebrates Australia. They are partnering up with the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, Zoos Victoria, and also Lund University to create a national Bogong Moth Observatory. And that will include the development of Bogong Watch, which is a citizen science project all about Bogong Moth. And it's been modelled off the successful Monarch Watch that they use in the in the US for the Monarch Butterflies. And it also expands on Zoos Victoria's Moth Tracker that they have. And that is to address the major knowledge gap around the distribution and migratory flyways of bogon moths. And any mob listening uh, on the East would know that bogon moths are culturally significant to many language groups, many First Nations peoples on this continent. And it's also an animal that is critical to the nutrient cycle in the Australian Alps. It's very important, these moths. But since 2017, we're seeing 5 to 10% of the expected number of these moths arriving at monitored sites. And the reason why they're declining isn't clear. You know, climate change may be a factor, but we don't have any determined specifics on this. We don't know for sure. So that's why researchers are inviting citizen science scientists, you and me and everyone from all across the country to join in this moth tracking adventure so that we can better understand why the bogon moth is declining. And the researchers are hoping that this program is going to have a really positive impact on sustaining our biodiversity, which everyone knows is critical to our long-term future. So keep an eye out for the National Bogong Moth Observatory and also the Bogong Watch Citizen Science Project. And if you see any Bogong moths, you know where to go to track them. Yeah, and I uh, may as well participate in that project. Sounds uh, re- really like a very good and uh, not only 
educational but also entertaining at the same time. Absolutely. The Bogon moths are, are really cool as well. They're, they're huge. They're really big moths. If anyone's ever seen one in person, you know what I mean. Okay, and I thought they're tiny because I've never seen one. <laughs> yeah, no, they're big. <laughs> okay, then uh, more reason to engage in this uh, experimentation or experience or, yeah. And now, one that is befuddling me is uh, how can cardiovascular healthcare be greener? How can health be green? Yeah, so a new review, it's shown how a lot of medical professionals in cardiology can help reduce healthcare's carbon footprint by making small, low-cost changes in how they work. Now, while the healthcare sector is obviously incredibly important and vital to human health and well-being, not a lot of people know it also has a really big carbon footprint. It contributes 4 to 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So this study is looking at the potential to effectively reduce environmental impacts within cardiac care specifically, obviously without compromising on the quality of health care. So there's a few steps that can be taken to reduce those carbon emissions and they often reduce the costs as well. So there's a lot of benefits here. So some of the recommendations that they have is you know, when it's clinically appropriate, you know, these decisions include what type of medical technology is used when examining the heart and that could make a big difference because cardiac magnetic resonance imaging or MRIs, they have a much larger carbon footprint compared to echocardiography, which is ultrasounds. Also choosing remote monitoring of pacemaker devices and, and telehealth consultations as well. They're things that can lower emissions. And there's other recommendations by the researchers, including using simple, low-cost interventions like quality improvement programs aimed at cutting ordering of unnecessary blood tests and reducing the use of PPE, personal protective equipment, where appropriate as well. And they also found how small changes in operating theatres can help reduce waste. And this also included being mindful of how waste is disposed of. Not something that you or I have to think about every day, Bertrand, but something that people in the operating theatre might be thinking about. So, for example, after cardiac bypass surgery, it's possible for the bypass circuits, they're the tubes that connect the patient to a machine that monitors the heart, they can be rinsed and then safely thrown out in normal waste disposal. They don't have to be incinerated as medically regulated waste. So the researchers, they're saying that obviously further research is necessary to explore the full environmental impact of various aspects of cardiology practice. And this includes finding strategies to decrease the carbon footprint and also to determine the most efficient methods for educating and increasing awareness among cardiologists, nurses and other healthcare professionals just about the environmental impacts of cardiovascular healthcare because you know, it's not something that a lot of people are thinking about in those high-stress situations. But obviously, a very important thing to tap into and, and make sure that we're doing the right thing in all aspects of our lives. Yeah, but if bin counters go in there and say uh, less uh, MRIs, uh, they might claim it for the environment, but yet it would be just to cut the costs. And uh, 
I wouldn't be in the, I wouldn't want to be in that situation where cost cutting uh, <laughs> you know is in conflict with uh, my own well-being so <laughs> yeah absolutely I think these decisions obviously need to be taken in consideration for what is best for the patient first and I don't think that there'd be any doctors or nurses out there that would ignore that but yeah, you know, yeah. where where it can be done and where it can be done safely, let's let's look at the options to help bring that carbon footprint down. Yeah, keep scientists and doctors in the operating theatres, but not accountants. That <laughs> well, Ray Johnston, thank you very much for bringing to us uh, exciting stories and developments in science and technology again. Thank you so much for having me.